Hey, I'm Anthony Shim, and you're listening to Contra Zoom Pod. ContraZoom, where we go back and forth about film. I'm your host, Rachel Ho. All right, everyone, hold on to your butts for the first time ever. I am flying solo in an episode, so I apologize in advance in case this is super awkward, and also for any misreadings and line stumblings that are surely about to happen. So we're officially in the thick of TIFF 22. I'm on the ground in Toronto right now, and watching as many movies as I possibly can in 10 days. And by the time you're hearing this, I'm probably really hopped up on some caffeine, just wandering around King Street really dazed, and probably confused as well. I'm probably dazed and confused on King Street. Uh, This is our second episode in what I'm calling the TIFF 22 Trilogy. The TIFF 22 ContraZoom Pod Trilogy. That's that's what I'm going with. Uh, A couple weeks ago, Dakota and I went through our most anticipated films in a TIFF preview episode, and next week we're going to have a wrap-up episode with a new guest and a fellow writer, Prabhjot Baines, and we're going to be talking about some of the movies that we watched and just our general experiences at the festival this year. But for this week's episode, I did a couple interviews with um, two directors ahead of the festival. The first one is a Korean-Canadian director from Vancouver. His name is Anthony Shim, and he's at TIFF this year with his second feature film, Rice Boy Sleeps. It's having its world premiere at the festival as part of the Platform and TIFF Next Wave Selects programs. The movie is set in the 90s and it follows a Korean single mother as she raises her young son in the suburbs of Canada, determined to provide a better life for him than the one that she left behind. This movie genuinely hurt my heart in the best possible way a movie could hurt your heart. Um, There is some moments of, of... it's really heartwarming and there's great laughs as well. Uh, but yeah, at the bottom of it, it's, it's a really beautiful story about a mother and a son and how they're navigating life in a new country and um, kind of the divide that, that happens for all of us when we're growing up with our parents. But, you know, it's a bit exasperated by uh, a bit of a cultural roadblock as well. And... There are some really, really great performances. As you're going to hear in the interview, two of the three main leads, um, it's their first acting job, which I found absolutely incredible um, because they're all really, really great and just really well cast. And, and Anthony and I get into that a little bit um, in the, as you're about to hear. So I love this movie a lot and I'd recommend it to everyone. So before, we, before I keep going, uh, here's me and Anthony chatting about the movie. 마이크 조던. 마이크 조던은 안 돼. 왜안 되는데? 데이비스는 어때? 데이비 좋은 이름 같지 않아? 싫어. 난 마이크 조던 할래. 왜 저래? 다른 이름 골라봐. 말했잖아. 마이크 조던. 안 돼. 다른 거 골라. 다른 거 싫어. 마이크 조던 할래. 그래 그러면 마이크 킴해. 뭐 아니면 조던 킴 하던가. 근데 싫어. 마이크 조던 한다고. 마이크 조던. 그만. All right, so Anthony, you are going to Toronto in uh, 
a few days really like you're going to toronto in a few days tomorrow and so how does that feel your first movie was uh premiered at the vancouver film festival and now you're going to the toronto film festival so you're like collecting canadian film festivals is basically what you're doing i'm slowly working my way away from home uh, <laughs> and yeah no we are i'm leaving for toronto tomorrow um and yeah i've been i've been looking forward to this time for a while now finally showing you know finally sharing this film with an audience and in a theater too not just you know through screeners <laughs> i actually wish that i'd seen it in theaters i watched it through a screener um because some of the like imagery is it's beautiful especially when you get to korea it looks yeah. amazing and it's going to look incredible on a screen i think it's going to look really really great yeah, I mean, I've I've seen it on, on on a bigger screen, um, not as big as what the um the light box is gonna have, but I have seen it on a bigger screen. I'm like, damn, that does make a big difference. Um, they, <laughs> it does. You know, they really just eat on your laptop. Um, <laughs> and so, anyone who is want, wanting to see the film, please go see it in the theaters because it's. I think it does, um, really help with the, the experience, um, the and the emotional impact of the story. So, definitely. So. I know COVID blocked for a lot of people um, or not blocked. It just messed up people's timing. So when did you actually start making rice boy sleeps? Um, well, actually, you know, I, we were, I was so lucky when it comes to the timing of things. Uh, you know, I, I just, I'm not sure if there could have been a better timing of making this film during a pandemic Yeah. in that, um, you know, I started writing this thing November 2019. And oh, so wow. it was like I started writing and I was, you know, I kind of set my life up so that I could just be alone, indoors with my computer. Um, and then this pandemic happened and, 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 you know, life as we knew it changed drastically overnight. And, and but it didn't really change for me. And I just, it actually, you know, if there was one good thing about COVID, it was for me at least that it just gave me so much time to write and work on this thing. And, and because I couldn't, you know, indulge in any of the other, you know, the, the, the fun activities that I might be, you know, doing had it, had there not been a pandemic. So I just, you know, worked on this a lot and then we managed to get financing and everything together pretty quickly. And, and we went to camera um, in the summer of 2021. 20, and at that point, we had just gotten to that point, at least in, in BC, where you didn't have to test everybody on set three times a week. Because, and PCR, um, PCR tests as well. Mm -hmm. I mean, we just couldn't have afforded it. I mean, that, that, that would have just eaten up a huge chunk of our budget. Um, and we were, you know, things were tight for us as well as it was. So um, we were so lucky where we just, we just found that little pocket of time where we didn't have to test. Um, COVID cases were going up again, but it wasn't as bad as it got later on. And things in Korea had gotten better at the time so that we were able to actually all take our gear and fly to Korea and shoot during a pandemic. And we didn't have to quarantine. 
you know, we got quarantine exemptions and, you know, that was, that had just recently been in effect. So, and that, that too, I mean, at the time, you know, to have, to go through a two week quarantine, you know, for our cast and crew, that's, that's a substantial amount of money and time, um, Mm -hmm. neither of which we could afford. So, I mean, we, we just, we couldn't have gotten luckier with the timing because one of so many things could have happened where it just completely derailed us. Um, but we just managed to squeak by every, you know, obstacle that came our way. And, and now that we're finally premiering, we're allowed to be in theaters again, you know, (laughs) we're allowed to have events and parties and get togethers and, and, and fly to this place and that place without having a quarantine or take a gazillion COVID tests. It's <laughs> true. Yeah, I didn't think of it. Like you, you kind of knocked on exactly the right timing for everything. All right, we talked a bit very briefly about um, the film kind of opening up on screen and looking just really gorgeous. Like it, it genuinely is. I don't think normally we don't, it sounds kind of weird to say, but it's like, I don't think we normally look to dramas almost to give you those really beautiful, beautiful landscapes, not in a story like this. Like, I'm not expecting to be blown away by the imagery. I'm more expecting to be blown away by the story. And then the fact that yourself, your DP, Christopher Liu, and your composer as well, uh, Andrew Yonghoon Lee, the three of you guys created an incredibly atmospheric film, like from obviously from your direction, but then the music is beautiful, by the way, it's incredible. Um, and then, like we said, the the actual cinematography of it. So when you guys are coming together, um, what were some of the influences, some of the touch points that you guys wanted to bring into the film? Um, and how did you decide what direction you wanted, like the energy of the film to go into? Well, you know, um, I'm so glad you enjoyed those specific aspect of the film um, because I, I knew really really early on um, as I was writing the script I knew that those two key positions were going to be um, so essential in in this film working and in mm-hmm. having the emotional impact that I was hoping to have on audiences um, and so I reached out to Chris and Andrew uh, neither of who you know I, I hadn't I didn't know either of them prior to this. Um, we had mutual acquaintances, um, but I didn't know them, but I, I was familiar with their work and I thought I was a huge fan and I thought what they, what they do would be, what they could bring to the table was perfect for what I was imagining in my head. And so, you know, I reached out, they were the first two people I reached out to and, you know, we discussed a lot of things and, and, and we wanted to make sure that we saw and imagined this film in a similar way. And, you know, to start, you know, I'll start with Chris and the visual portion of the film. You know, we really had to agree on specifically the, 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 the camera's perspective. Mm-hmm. Through whose POV are we experiencing this film from? Um, and, you know, in various different ways of explaining it, we ultimately came to this place where we described it as, you know, the camera representing the eyes of the deceased father. Mm-hmm. That's not really an important piece of information for the audience to have when they're 
watching the film. But for us, we needed to make a specific decision. And, and whenever we got, you know, got into a place where we just didn't know, like, where are we shooting this from? Why is the camera moving? And should it be moving? You know, we, we wanted to always re refer back to that of from the beginning to the end, it is being told from that perspective. And so that we start in Korea and we end in Korea from that perspective. And, you know, that really informed us at, you know, every step of the way of, the camera's movements, you know, when and how do we cut? Uh, why does the camera move? Um, why does the camera linger on, on a person's face at certain times? Um, and, and we agreed on that pretty quickly. And we came to that, we, you know, we had these ideas separately as well, which was a really good sign. Um, and then from there, we start to build on to it. And, you know, we discussed a lot of different film references we both had similar ideas of, you know, filmmakers and films in mind that we thought would be good, good um, go-to references for us. Um, and then, and then it was, yeah, you know, it's like, as we were shooting, we were, you know, we were figuring it out, you know, like, the, you know, like, theoretically, we understood what we were doing on paper, you know, on paper, it made sense. But then for us to actually get out there with this film camera and to, you know, on a gimbal and to actually execute these moves. Um, it took us a little bit to really figure out, but after a little while, you know, and we started seeing the dailies and we shot on film. So we weren't seeing the dailies for, you know, we didn't see the first batch of dailies till the weekend after the first week of shooting. So mm -hmm. once we started to see it and we went, okay, like this is working. I, you know, we could start to identify you know, what scenes and what moves were working and what wasn't and why. Um, and that was, that was enough for us to, you know, feel confident to keep going and to really lean into it. Um, and then, you know, that pair, knowing that that's where we were coming with, you know, we had very similar conversations when it came to the music side of it. Um, you know, like talking about the perspective of it and um, the, the the feeling, the purpose of the music, um, and that the goal of the, the the music in this wasn't to manipulate audiences to feeling certain emotions, but that it it helps really just complete the world on an you know on an audio sense as well. Um, and I told, you know, I, when I talked to Andrew from early on, I told him, I said, you know, like I, I was, I had listened to so much of his work and I was listening to his previous um, musical works while I was writing mm -hmm. and while I was building a pitch deck and while I was, you know, doing research. And so in my mind, his music and this world were synonymous already. And so I told Andrew, I said, you know what, honestly, if you just gave us the stuff you've already recorded, I can make that work in this world perfectly. Like it, it works. Like you don't have to do anything outside of like what you just do well already. And, and of course, you know, you know, Andrew has, in the best of ways, has so much pride in his, in his work and so much, um, you know, like takes such a, a strong responsibility of, of what he creates um, and artistic integrity um, 
that he just he wanted to create something entirely original and new specifically for this story in this world which i said hell yeah like I'll, I'll, you know <laughs> I, I can't wait to hear this stuff and it was amazing you know we we talked so much early on um and not necessarily about movies but we we talked about our own you know connection to our Korean heritage, our upbringing, you know, our thoughts and opinions about child, parent-child relationships, you know, our relationships with our language, our name, you know, our culture. Um, and we discussed so many, you know, so many things on a, on a deep personal level um, in that by the and it felt like we really got to know each other on a, on, on, a, on a certain level that was really unique and special. That by the time that he actually started making the music, he would send stuff over and I would just take it and I would just plop it in and it would just work. And we didn't, and there was no back and forth of, hey, can you try this? Can you try that? Can you change this? No, it was just like, thank you. Here, here <laughs> you go. Take. It's just, just plop them in, <laughs> plop them in. And that's the movie. Like it, it, it was so effortless and seamless in a way um, mm -hmm. when it came to that actual creative part of it, um, because he was just so in touch with mm -hmm. this story, these characters, this world, and 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 my sensibilities and where I was coming from and what I was hoping to achieve. Um, you know, that was, yeah, it was, it was. I mean, both of them. When we actually got to shooting. It was so collaborative and it was so creative and um, I, I trusted Chris 1000%. Um, and sometimes, I, you know, like I didn't even need to be consulted. I just knew like whatever you think would work for this, like I just know it will work because, um, the, you know, I, I feel like if we did anything right, we did the prep really well. Um, it really comes together really nicely that that what you said about you know the camera being from the pov of the father that adds a really i know you said it doesn't ma matter to the audience and in this in a sense it doesn't like it, it doesn't but that adds like a really interesting layer and texture especially on a rewatch which i will be rewatching from that screener link and i think i am going to try to find time at toronto to watch it in theater Please. but it adds like another level of just um I suppose affecting and like meaning to it that that's incredible but I you know what you said about Andrew's music I loved it like the score was just to me so overwhelming at times and I loved how each bit comes together so it's nice to hear that you guys are so collaborative with one another because it shows in my opinion like I, I think that everything kind of comes together in a really beautiful way and that it's clear you all had a very good understanding with one another about what the movie was going to be about and what it meant um to each of you individually mm. like and so i think that that's really cool um so going along with the people who helped you make this movie i you know your actors are incredible and especially the two young kids the, the two boys um they're like it's amazing it's they're absolutely amazing and especially so uh, apologies if i don't pronounce his name properly but you have um Duhian Noel Wong and then Ethan yeah, he Wong. Just, he, go, he just goes by Noel. Yeah. Does he just go by Noel? Yeah, yeah. I have another friend who's I shouldn't say his name on this, but I have a friend whose name that's actually his name, but we call him by his last name. Um, 
but they're both, you know, they both were amazing as young David and teenage David. And yeah. how did you find these guys? Um, I, I, they're both Vancouver based, if I'm not no. mistaken. No, no, no. Oh, no. Is, oh, sorry. One was from Edith, Toronto. Edith is from Toronto. Right, right, right. Um, but how did you find well, these guys? Um, not easily. No. Oh. <laughs> uh, when we first put out the audition submissions, um, we started we started close. We started local, and then we started to kind of work our work our way out. Um, just because for financial reasons, it's always more. It's always better to cast local. Um, mm -hmm. So we we tried to see if there was you know that. I mean, I've been a part of the Vancouver acting scene for a long time, so I, I know a lot of actors, and I knew I didn't personally know of any. Um, but we thought oh, maybe there's a you know a diamond in the rough that I'm not aware of, and um, we just we couldn't you know I I couldn't find anyone that was quite right. And the biggest thing was nothing to do with these young actors um acting uh, uh acting skills but it had to do with the language oh. um it had to do with for the little one um he had to be able to speak korean fluently and have but struggle with english and mm -hmm. then for teenage donghyun he had to be fluent completely fluent in english and have a real, you know, struggle with speaking Korean. And I wanted to have it be natural as well. Um, and so that was the biggest thing that that pretty much just, you know, that that was a thing that eliminated a lot of the potential candidates. Um, and so we had a hard time. And then I put out a it put out um, an ad in the, the Korean newspaper. Yeah, <laughs> we made this, you know, this like, Add, you know, just saying like making a movie about you know Korean immigrants and you know directed by Anthony Shim and uh, we're looking for a boy this age, this age range, um, no experience needed, that kind of stuff. Please con contact this email address and send us you know send us your name and headshot whatever. Uh, and we did that, and then I looked at so many young kids, and I and I started looking everywhere else, um, and then we get this these tapes one day and like they're well shot but they're kind of like a commercial <laughs> short film like psa maybe like like i'm not sure exactly what they are you know because it didn't have like opening like didn't have like a title and op like in credits and stuff of for a short film um it but it wasn't necessarily like advertising anything so it wasn't a commercial but i was like i just like and they it it would have this like loose sort of storyline to it um and i got like three of them of this boy and i thought did this boy make these short films for this audition um but nonetheless it was noel and he was perfect and just you know Fate would have it, his dad recently decided to pursue filmmaking. Oh. And so had gone to film school and was making these these videos, these short film type things with using his son. And so his 
you know, and so like there was all this kind of evidence of his son being natural and, you know, really being great on in front of the camera. And so then we took those and we just went like, oh, this this is this is our guy. Like, where is he from? Like, we have no information about him. And he and he turned out to, you know, live 30 minutes from where we were shooting. So that worked out just beautifully. Um, and he's just like you don't find kids like that every day. He was such a pro and such a joy to work with. Um, and that could have gone disastrously that, you know, that role, um, because you just don't know how kids are going to react to stress or fatigue or, you know, pressure, but he was amazing. And then, you know, I, I, I was having a hard time finding the teenage boy. And then, you know, I reached out to uh, an actor friend of mine in Toronto and just said, you know, he's who's also Korean. And I said, you know, do you know anyone in Toronto that you could re uh, recommend? And he knew someone from the church, which, you know, the reverend there was also the reverend of the church I grew up going to in Victoria, BC. Oh, wow. So it was just a crazy coincidence. Um, and then he sent me a picture of Ethan and I went, that's a guy. I don't know what he sounds like. I don't know how he <laughs> acts. But that face, that look, like that is our boy. And um, I was right. <laughs> Ethan fits into the 90s really well, too, I have to say. Yeah. Like, he yeah. fit that, the, the, the mushroom cut, the bleach yeah. tip. Like, it fit, he fit it really, really well, uh, which yeah. I thought was funny. Because I'm like, he just reminds me of every Asian boy I grew up with. Like, <laughs> like, he just reminds me of that. It's great. Yeah. Um, and then what about, what about Choi uh, Sung Yoon? You got her, she's actually from Korea. And I saw that yeah. she was a dancer. Like she originally trained yes. to be a ballet dancer, which yes. made so much sense to me. Cause I felt like the whole time I was watching her, she had, she has like a way of carrying herself and like the way she moves across the screen. She, the screen she's very, like graceful she is like yes. a dancer and so it didn't really surprise me that she had a dancing background she moves with grace and integrity yes which absolutely was such an essential part of this role that although she is a you know uh, a working class immigrant woman who you know is working in these you know rough conditions and um is dealing with a lot of emotional hardships but that when we see her walk across that screen that she walks with her head held up high and and she walks with integrity that was so important and um it's just amazing that we found someone like her um and that was also not easy that, that I, you know there was a there was a time there's a brief time that i thought we might not make this film because i didn't feel like there was the right person for this role and i mean for all three roles, but in particular with the role of So Young, if that part wasn't cast right, I, like this film just wouldn't work, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. um, and so, once again, we did. You know, we put out a, a, a search across North America. Um, I feel like I've seen the tapes of every Asian female <laughs> actors across North America. <laughs> Uh, between the ages of 15 to 50. <laughs> uh, and once again, the language thing. Yeah. That was really tough. 
and then we started and then I came to Korea for location scouting and I started meeting with actors and um, inquiring about actresses here um, and same thing here the language was an issue um, you know someone who could speak English just well enough that they could you know, they, they could connect their voice to their emotional life, you know, but mm -hmm. still have an accent and all of those things. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we finally decided to work with the casting director in Korea. And, you know, she knew that I wasn't, I was, you know, I just wasn't happy with, you know, a lot of the actors that we were looking at. And not because they were bad. They just didn't fit that specific mold that, that, was, that I felt was so important. Um, and then she goes, I've got this it's a crazy idea, um, but, you know, just give it a shot. There's this person I know. She's a dancer. She's never acted before. But I've watched her in this documentary about dancers that she made. Um, and she, there's just something about her. Oh. And, it, and, and and the casting director said, if I had to put anyone at the top of the list, it would be her. And I said, are you out of your fucking mind? <laughs> I've, I've got two young boys, one who's never acted before, and another one with, you know, limited acting experience. And you want me to cast a lead with someone who's never been in a movie before or acted before? That, like, that you're, that's just... I'm just putting, you know, flushing this movie down the toilet. I, like that, that is insane. Just, just, just give it a go. You know, give it a shot. Have a look at these, um, these uh, 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 videos that she's in, and, and watch her work. And I did, and I, and I thought, damn, she's right. Like there is something about her that is, you know, that is just so charismatic um, and intriguing. And there's a vulnerability about her. Um, that I thought was so right. And so then she sent a tape, watched the tape. And that particular day, I had watched a hundred other tapes of that particular scene. It, it, I had, it was so much so that I started to question whether it was my writing that was the problem. <laughs> and, and, and then I, I see her and I, I went, oh my God, I'm fucked. I'm going to have to cast the lead with someone who's never acted before. And we met over Zoom. And, you know, I mean, she loves telling this story because she loves telling people about how I made her audition four times um, <laughs> after her initial audition taping. Uh, it was because I just, I just, I, I needed to see her read these other scenes as well. And just with every read, I just went like, this is so good. Like, this is the movie. This is the character. Um, and, you know, everyone who heard that I wanted to cast someone who had never acted before also thought I was out of my mind. And then, but then I would show these Zoom recordings that I would do with her. Um, and everyone, everyone thought the same thing. Like, this is so young. Like, and at, at the time, I knew so little about her personal life. Um, and, it, like, it was so convincing that I thought, I wonder if she grew up as an orphan for real. Like, and I had to ask her, like, do you have children? Did you grow up 
somewhere else? You know, Awkward question. Are you? Yeah, like I'm afraid to ask about your relationship with your parents. Uh, but no, she grew up, you know, with the the wonderful family, and you know, <laughs> grew up in Seoul, and you know, lived had a you know wonderful childhood being a ballerina. Um, but it wasn't necessarily about her specific you know, life experience, but it was more so about her, um, her emotional capacity and the, and the way she experiences the world around her. That was so similar to so young that I thought that's it. That's, that, that's, that's what matters. One thing I enjoyed about her was, you know, the first time that we see her in, um, when, when David's like a little boy and she speaks a little bit of English and that is, a more um, Korean accented English than we get when he's a teenager. And like, you can see the progression of her English. And like, I thought I was like, that's how did she take English? Like to be an actress and to start trying to pretend that you don't speak a language without sounding like a cartoon, I think is very, must be very difficult. And I think she pulled it off so nicely. And I love that, that just kind of passage of time that you see with Mm -hmm. her, like just specifically her. Is incredible. I can't believe that that's her first acting role. That's incredible. One part of the movie that I really thought was interesting, and I mean, it's a touch point with, I think, most East Asian cultures, but I know that other cultures have the same thing, which is you never, ever discuss anything about hard times, any difficult times, nothing bad that's ever happened in your life. You just don't talk about it. That's mm-hmm. and, and us as children, we know don't talk to your, don't even ask your parents, don't ask your grandparents about it. Forget it. It's off limits. Mm-hmm. But then there's kind of a funny thing where our generation that is being born and raised outside of Asia and we're in the West where they just can't stop talking about their emotions in the West and talking about how trauma and grief and all those things like it's just it's it's never ending over here. So it's like the complete opposite. So yeah. for yourself, you're kind of you've got a foot in both camps. Like I read in the press kit, which by the way, nicest press kit I've ever seen. I just wanted to throw that out there. Thank you. And it's a beautiful press thanks. kit. <laughs> and I have to sh- give a shout out to our production designer, Louisa Burton, <laughs> who, who, does, who made that press kit. So um, nice. I said, I said, I said, to, I said, Louisa, no one cares about what a press kit looks like. Not true. <laughs> and well, maybe, you know, as in like the, the audience. Yeah, I know. Made. I know. Yeah. You know, it doesn't it doesn't make a difference in how well it does at the box office or how much we're able to sell it for. <laughs> but I said, you know, I find most press kits to be so boring. Just and yeah. just it just like it's, it just feels like reading a you know, it's a document. You know, it's yeah, just, yeah, it's like word doc that got converted to yeah. a PDF. That's it. Exactly. That's all it is. This so is said, beautiful though. I was like, it was a, we we gotta do this thing. I gotta. I, I need to deliver a, a press kit. We might as well have some fun with it, and we might as well make it look pleasing to the eye, so that those who do have to look at it can have a good time. You know, <laughs> thank and, you, <laughs> thank you very much. I can get a, you know, it can get a sense of who we are as a team. Um, so <laughs> it's beautiful. So I'm so it's glad beautiful. you liked it. It's honestly time and money well spent on that one. It's really, really great. Um, but in your director statement yeah. on there, you mentioned about being, you know, you're neither Korean, you're neither Canadian, you're both. You're a hyphenate, yes. you know, like so many of us, we're, we're lovely hyphenate people. And I love how you said that, actually, like, you're, I'm a hyphenate. I'm like, I've never thought of it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but when you've got your foot in both camps and you yourself being a writer, being a director, how does it, how does being on one end coming from a culture that says, don't talk about bad stuff, don't talk about hard things. And then growing up in a culture that, like I said, just seemingly only wants to talk about how, you know, parents ruined our lives and blah, 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 and all that kind of stuff. How does that influence you as a writer um, and the kinds of stories that you want to tell? So making this film, I, it actually gave me the opportunity to learn a lot about my own upbringing and my past and my family um, because it kind of gave me an excuse slash permission to talk to my mom about a lot of things that we had never talked about. Um, things about her past, things about, you know, our relationship over the years. Um, and I, and it was, and it was quite therapeutic and, and, and wonderful. Um, I think it brought us much closer, um, because you're right. We come from cultures where you don't talk about the past. You don't talk about the traumas of your people, of your own life. Um, it's about just, you know, you just, you just keep marching on. Um, and I think, I think it's unfortunate because, you know, I lost two of my four grandparents in the, during the making of this film. Oh. And there's a, there's so much about their past that I want to know and learn so much about because it helps inform who I am today. Um, it makes me feel more grounded and whole as a person. Um, but they were people of a generation where they just refused to talk about certain things, no matter how much I asked. Um, and I think my mom has made a real effort in not being that way, but being much more open and, and communicating and sharing with us. And then I, I make an effort to ask and to take interest in those things. Um, so I think the takeaway is, you know, in, in Western culture, in, in Canadian culture, we do talk about all of these things and we do talk about our feelings. And I think it's great as long as it's not about indulging in it or, or, or you know, feeling sorry for yourself. I think there's a way to investigate and, and to be curious about your past and, and about the things that are painful in a way that it's used to grow from, to learn from and to heal from. Um, and so I think if there's a way to kind of find that balance of these two cultures, of we can be a generation where we do talk, we do discuss, but it's all for the purposes of teaching and learning and growing, um, whether it be with our elders or with our, you know, next generation. Um, and in the films I make, I would love to do just that, but through the medium of filmmaking. I think that's why I'm, I get really excited about like not just seeing Asian faces in Hollywood movies. Like that's cool. Like I, I think that that's really neat. And obviously something that we need to have done because we didn't have it when we were growing up. Um, but I get more excited about the idea of Asian, Canadian, Asian, American, whatever um, directors and writers and things like that, because I just feel like 
because we come from such a, um, a repressed culture in many ways, it's kind of neat to see what we're going to be able to do as like a group of people of just being able to put out art that, you know, our parents would never have dreamed of opening and being up that vulnerable about certain things in our lives. Um, mm -hmm. So I think that that's awesome. And I, and I, and then I commend you for doing that so well in this movie. Genuinely, I really, really Thank love you. this movie and it made me cry and it made me laugh as well, though. There are some funny moments. I thought that there were some really cute, funny moments that I, enjoyed. I, you know, I, I tried, I, I, to me, originally, I set out to, uh, you know, I, I set out to write a comedy. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I started that in that direction, and it started to go another direction, and I had to, I had to commit to it. But I was like, but you know, I gotta hold on to these, gotta hold on to these funny moments, to the, to the lighter <laughs> moments, because there there was something up, there were some real absurd moments of my my upbringing, you know, that have informed who I am today. Um, and it, and it would be a shame to not present it in its authentic form. Yeah. There's yeah. a, I find it really fascinating. And I, I saw it the most, I think with, um, what was that show called? Fresh off the boat. Kind of the one that started like the whole thing off with like Asians in, in America, mm -hmm. but the, the scene in the lunchroom, which you also have a similar type scene. Mm -hmm. Um, I really enjoy that because I, I didn't realize that every single one of us went through the exact same thing. Like all of us basically yeah. had that moment in the lunchroom where we opened our Tupperware containers and every other kid was like, what is that? You know, like, what are you eating? Are those worms? It's like, no, they're just noodles. Yeah. And in no, 20 you years, like you're going to love yeah. these things and you're going to spend 20 bucks a bowl eating this. So be quiet. Yes. The, the you know, <laughs> the irony in that it's just, it's just crazy to me that the yeah. things <laughs> that we were made fun of for eating. Now the people who were making fun of us are now going to spend twenty, thirty dollars at some yeah. shit ass restaurant in a in a you know hipster neighborhood yeah. and saying how much you love authentic Asian food. Yeah. It's like, great, wow, Asian great on one, yeah, yeah. Get out of here. It's great on one hand, but at the same time it's just like, motherfucker, I knew I, I know you. <laughs> you were you were the kid who was bullying the Asian kids for eating exactly that twenty years ago. Exactly. Anyways, I, yeah. I love that we all had that morning. experience. Yeah. I think it's amazing. I think it's amazing that we can all share in that the fact that that happened. Um, I because you know it's amazing because I, I thought you know I think we all grow up thinking, oh that was only me. I was the only one that experienced that. But then, you know, since I wrote the script from the time I've written the script and everyone who's read it and now has seen the film, you know that's one of the most talked about things. It's just like, and, and it's not just Asian people. Yeah, you know, it's, this it's, weird it's, thing. It's Eastern European people who have said that yeah. to me. It's Italian people who have said that to me. Yeah, you know, if it wasn't a sandwich, if it wasn't some Wonder Bread bologna sandwich, yes. then it was weird, and it was weird that we were eating good food. And it's like, come on, you guys. Well, Anthony, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me, and yes, congratulations you. on this movie. I genuinely, really, really loved it, and um, I can't wait for everybody else to to be able to watch it at TIFF mm -hmm. and I know you're going to do some of the other festival circuits so mm -hmm. yeah best of luck with that and congratulations thank you and maybe I'll see you in person while I'm in Toronto yeah that'd be yeah. great okay thank you so much thank you to Anthony for taking the time to chat with me Rice Boy Sleeps is of course going to be in Toronto but it's also going to be playing at the Vancouver International Film Festival the Calgary International Film Festival and I think 
one over on the Atlantic part of Canada as well. And also it will be playing over in Busan in Korea um, at that film festival too. So there's plenty of chances for a lot of different people out there to watch it if you're interested, and I would highly recommend it. Our next interview is with John Barker, a filmmaker from South Africa whose latest movie, The Umbrella Men, is having its international premiere at TIFF as part of the Contemporary World Cinema Program. A comedic heist film, The Umbrella Men follows a ragtag bunch of musicians who are forced to rob a bank during the Cape Town Minstrel Carnival in an effort to save their nightclub. The movie dives into a lot about the Cape Malay community and culture, which previously I knew nothing about, and so I, I was really looking forward to speaking with John and learning more about it, and um, that I did in the interview. I really enjoyed talking with him about not just that aspect of it, but how the movie came about, um, what his influences were, and, and his perspective on the South African film industry, um, which I... I've oddly been very drawn to South African films in the last couple of years. Not oddly, because it's it's weird that South Africa just a bit random, and I I haven't done it on purpose. It's just that I've seen great South Af or great movie descriptions, and they all end up being South African. So it was it was fun talking to John about um, that side of things. So, anyways, here it is. It's my interview with John Barker. That's how Gersman Adams said, the umbrella." Does this make us good, Dad? How long are you staying, man? I made it back now, huh? We're two weeks away from the carnival. Stay for that at least, man. We're an umbrella men, bruh. No, no, what you tell? I don't want this. This is your place now. That's what your father wanted. And I know he had good reason. Jerome, let me take the Kuma Club off your hands. The Plekos of man, it's falling apart. You see, I want to revive it, make it shine. How much is the club of? About a million before taxes. Hi, how are you? Good, Rachel. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Um, congratulations, first of all. I this film is it's so much fun. I love South African films. It's kind of a random thing that I've recently, in the last few years, really been drawn to South African cinema. Not kind of purposely either. I just every time I read a movie description, I'm like, oh, that sounds good. And then inevitably it's a South African director. <laughs> it's, it's great. Um so I read that this movie was 15 years in the making for you. So this started, process started a long, long time for you. So how does it feel not only to have it done and dusted, but how does it feel to be back at TIFF where your first film also screened? I mean, that would have been, what, 16 years ago now, which is crazy. Yeah. Hey, time goes by. It's, uh, yeah, Rachel, it's been, you know, I literally had the idea to do this film on the back of Bunny Chow. So when Bunny Chow like, screened around America, everyone was kind of going, oh, well, we didn't know that South Africans had uh, music festivals. And I was like, we have all things, man. <laughs> so, so I thought like my next film, because I love the, the heist and caper genre, I wanted to, to, to write a, a, a caper film, but set it in a world that the international audience would kind of relate to. And that was the, the Minstrel Carnival, because it's been going for, for over you know, 200 years. Mm -hmm. uh, very beautiful but in the term yeah so for 15 years we've been trying to make this film and i just you know many times i actually thought why am i doing this nobody cares every time i pitch this beautiful film, I, like the filmmakers are always like this is a fantastic film how can nobody want to make this film we even had trevor noah before the daily show trevor was the lead playing the lead right he was based in south african Joburg. so trevor mm -hmm. and i would speak and even when 
I was going to New York to, to speak to Trevor. He had just got the Daily Show and we're still speaking about the film. Um, just with his involvement somehow because, um, but even then South Africans still weren't like, okay, you've got Trevor, let's go, it's brilliant. They were still like, no, the story it doesn't work. Like, am I going crazy? That's mad. So to have it in Toronto now, it just means, it's just so fantastic for all the crew and the cast who shot, we shot 10 years ago, we shot some scenes of the carnival. And to tell everybody and to show everybody that we actually, first of all, we made the film was, was, was amazing everybody on set. It was a real beautiful atmosphere because people have been involved for so long. And then just to get into a big festival like Toronto is just the cherry on the cake. It's beautiful. So cool. So hold on. So I want to ask about Trevor Noah again, but just go back. You filmed some of the shots in the film 10 years ago. Yeah, we got into the atelier in Cannes. They, they liked right. the script. They they put us in touch with a lot of producers but to convey the the music and the community i felt like we needed to go and shoot to explain what it looks like you know so we went and shot down there over 10 years ago it's so funny the guy who plays mortimer the guy gets picked up in prison he at one stage was when we shot 10 years ago he was the baby in the film he was supposed to be the youngster and it was a guy he was playing a guy obviously he was playing a guy but the girl so his character's now changed from him to now Mila. So Mila, the girl with the dreadlocks, she, I adapted that role that he was playing because it was a guy, it was too many men in the film. So I adapted him, changed him to a girl and he became Mila. And he then, he was playing young Yusuf, which is a Muslim name, which we can go into later, I have to change it too. But, but Keenan Arison then now is playing one of the main leads who gets picked up from prison. But because so much time has gone by, it's bizarre. <laughs> wow. Um, so about Trevor Noah, I want to know, has, has he seen the film? Has, have you been able to show it to him yet? But David Kabuka is my, uh, he, Dave Kabuka is the guy who was the lead in Bunny Cha. Yeah. And um, so him and Trevor were, worked together a lot here in South Africa. And when Trevor got the Daily Show, he took Dave with him. So him and Dave have been working together on Daily Show forever. Dave's now producing and he's been one of the writers forever. So uh, and they live together. <clears throat> so basically through this entire process, Trevor hears about the umbrella men all the time. He's like, because <laughs> I send Dave clips and posters and Dave shows Trevor and it's been a, it's been a crazy working experience for, for years. In fact, Trevor said one day I, I went to the early show and he was like, um, uh, well, I went to watch the show and then I went backstage and he was getting changed to go out somewhere. And as he was getting changed, there were all these executives from the Daily Show in the room and he said, and I came and he said, this is John Barker. He's a filmmaker from South Africa. He's been trying to do the, the embellishment for so long that, that if I was knocked over in the road and I was lying there dying, John would say, hey, Trevor, can you still do the embellishment? Like, that's how he introduced me to all these execs. I was like, hey, <laughs> not that bad. That's funny. Um, I want to go into some of the aspects of the film that I found the most interesting, which was the... South African culture, the touch points from there. But I do have a question about making a heist movie, generally speaking. Do you, logically speaking, I think for me, I would think you would know what your ending is and then work your way backwards to the beginning. Is that how you wrote it along um, with, I think it was Philip, I think you, Philip Roberts, you wrote it with. Is that how you guys structured it from the, from the beginning, or sorry, from the end to the beginning? Or did you just kind of find your way through the other way? I mean, I think I always had it that it was going to be a Robin Hood type film where they only stole what they what they needed. 
Right. Because I didn't want that to be a thing of like, oh, so whenever this community is in trouble, their backs to the wall, then they do something dodgy. You know what I mean? I, d- I didn't want to have that. But uh, yeah, in general, it was basically the, the, the music was the inspiration, the music and the, the carnival and what it represents and what that community represents to South Africans. Right. Um, and the was that these guys who would not be the A team or the B team or the C team, but would be like a D team of, of house, of robbers, bank robbers, right? The comedy would come from there and them stumbling through and not really knowing exactly what they were doing, that they would, they would definitely, they would, at the end of the, they would beat the man, the man who's trying to take away their nightclub and he's trying to, you know, gentrify and make more money out of it, that he was robbing them of their, you know, of their livelihoods, that they would get one up on him by using their cultural, um, their, their, the things that are key to them in, in terms of the carnival. So it's painting the faces and wearing the uniforms, 30,000 minstrels wearing uniforms. I wanted them to be clever to use the things that they loved in their community to have one up on the man and to take down the bank by doing it. So that was always the idea that I guess we kind of meandered and it changed a lot. As you know, like Yosef became Miller and so a lot changed, but in essence, it was about uh, a group of guys who were necessarily bank robbers, but with passionate musicians and crazy enough to go, well, we've backs to the wall. We have to rob this bank in order to preserve our culture. So it was a meandering thing for many years. Like the script has changed so many times, Rachel, over, over the 15 years. It's ridiculous. Well, I mean, over 15 years, I feel like it's bound to happen that it will change a little bit here and there, right? Yeah. Um, so like I said, the South African cultural touch points on it, I find really, really interesting. And I have to thank you for introducing me to different aspects of the country's history and the culture that I really had no idea about. So things like, you know, the, the area of Bokap in general, the idea of the Cape Malay. When I kept hearing Malay, I thought, are they talking about like Malays from Malay? And I thought, oh, that's, that's interesting. So I ended up down a real rabbit hole of just looking up things about Second New Year. Um, even, you know, I kind of came across things about the Goma song because I was like, I wonder where that word came from when you named the nightclub, the Goma Club. And I, so I thank you for that because it's been a very great education over the last few days of learning about that. Um, your other films though, like you, your Wonder Boy is, is quite satirical in terms of the South African political climate. Um, and Bunny Chow, obviously that touches on a part of South African culture that clearly Americans thought you don't have film, fe- or you don't have music festivals. You guys don't do those things. Um, but what made you want to focus on the Cape Malay, that culture, that community for this for this film? Well, in my, like there's a lot of history about Mama took me to um, to watch the minstrels perform when I was very young, I was about seven years old, and I remember being so blown away by the music and the way they looked and that it was South African, but to me it was kind of it was amazing, it was fantastical to see these guys performing. Um, and it was just something I, I didn't know was actually South African. And as time went by, I kept doing research and, and learning about the minstrels. And obviously, they, you know, it's it's in the, it's in the South African news all the time that they, the people of Cape Town, don't want the minstrels to perform. It's always a it's always a thing where they're too noisy and it's loud and it's in its faces and it's like we're sick of it. So they try and every year they strip a little bit more of that of that carnival, which is something I felt like I really wanted to document. Um, and also when my, my dad was a soccer coach, well, is a soccer coach, and he would take us to 
we'd follow him around to Amlani and to Kamashu and Durban. So all the, the black townships, he would coach, he was coaching Amazulu at the time. And then Amazulu got into a final in Cape Town and we, we drove down to Cape Town. And the first place he took me to was a place called District 6. District 6 was one of the oldest suburbs in, in Cape Town. And um, it was a very mixed suburb. It was all races, all different kind of races together. And the apartheid government hated that idea that there was this, um, this community or the suburb where, you know, everyone would, would mix and then there, would, there was harmony. Because for them, that was, that was the opposite of what apartheid was. They wanted to keep it all separate. Mm-hmm. And so they turned the, the suburb into an all-white suburb and they chased out all of the, they made it official in the 70s. And they they put people onto trucks and they they kicked them out of the out of that beautiful bohemian beautiful beautiful old fantastic suburb. And when my dad took us down to Cape Town, the first place he took us to was District Six, and it looked like some ap- apocalyptic film. That was because it's so terrible because half the buildings were pulled down. There were still kids playing in the street, but the backdrop was these. It looked like it, it looks like somewhere in Germany or Europe that had been bombed during the Second World War. That, um, so I always wanted to, to make a film about this community that went through all of this and that yet still were so, um, were so upbeat about their community and about their roots that it was very important to try and make that kind of film. But also I used comedy in a way to highlight um, points about gentrification, about the fact that the ongoing discussion in that community is that, um, and the community is very really split in that some feel that, that it's a colonial thing that everyone dresses in minstrels with the, with the black face idea turned into white face. And so some of the younger people in the community are not sure that they want to hang on to this as part of their culture. And, and there's an, then the other half are like, no, this is, this is what we've gone through when we were emancipated in the, in the 1840s, we took to the streets. This is part of our culture, it's part of our heritage and we must embrace it. So that's also touched on the film. Um, but it's just a fascinating community and I really wanted to always make a film about, a, a based in that community. So going off that um, answer, it, when you're trying to find that balance between showing off the cultural aspects of the community and the history as well. And those are quite, it's quite dark in many ways, but there's also a lot of light and joy to it, which you show. When you're finding that balance between, you know, a a comedic action heist film, was that a difficult thing to to find that balance, I suppose, along along with Philip um, Roberts? Was that that a difficult balance to to achieve? Yes, it was very difficult to achieve because you don't want to look, I'm saying all these things too, but it's very obvious that I'm an old white guy. Um, you know, so I don't know how many more years uh, I would have to actually make this film about this community. And my dream is that the people from the community will definitely be, will one day be making films uh, about this community. So, um, but to answer your question, I felt was always very aware of not overstepping the boundaries as a filmmaker, mm-hmm. being true to the community, not letting making the community feel like, okay, there's this white guy just arrived and he's appropriating our culture gains and he's not respecting the culture. So I was, it, was, it was a real, um, it was a touchy thing. To, we knew that we had to embrace it and we had to pull it off. Um, I hope it has been pulled off. One of the ways 
that we got the go-ahead from the from from the K community was that they it's it's a Muslim and a Christian community, but I think probably more predominantly Muslim. And they had a committee that read the script. We we wanted to involve them and, and ask for their permission if we were not um, overstepping in any way on the culture. And so we gave them the script, they read the script, and we made a couple of changes based on what they said. So we were very respectful of, of that. And um, yeah, it's a, it's a tough thing to balance. It's, um, it was a, it's a tricky thing. I hope, I hope we've pulled it off. I mean, it's, you, there's a lot of comedy in it and I laughed uh, many times in it. And then, but like I said, like I dove deep, like headfirst into so much of the culture that I, I knew nothing about. And I just found it really fascinating to learn about that. So, um, you know, what you said leads nicely into to something I wanted to talk about, which is in here in North America, and I'm sure you're very aware of it, when we talk about things like, you know, cultural appropriation and um, authentic representations and diverse representations. It's quite a, a hot topic these days in the film industry in Hollywood. And um, it can be a real minefield for people outside of the community wanting to make a film about that community. And not that it can't be done, it obviously can be, but um, these days it's, there's a lot of societal and almost political considerations that need to be made. Is it the same in South Africa? I mean, it sounds similar that it is very similar in South Africa and probably even more so given the history um, with race and in in the country. But I was just wondering, like kind of looking from the outside in at America and how that film industry is forming right now. Do you find you guys are a bit more sensitive? Are you more relaxed almost about it because of all of the kind of the more recently dark history versus America where their history is I don't want to say it's not recent but it's not as recent say as apartheid yeah it, it is a it's a topic that everyone's talking about around the world um, mm -hmm. and it's difficult because, you know I, I live in Africa and I want to continue to make films about Africa so it's also tricky because it should be uh, you know, people should be making films that are that are based in that community. That's what it should be. But I also think to some degree that it shouldn't stop people from making films from as an outsider's perspective. Because I think as a film, that's quite an interesting thing to be objective about a community. Sometimes you can be subjective and you might not get, um, you know, the truths of the film. So it's like my thing is to promote black filmmakers, um, that they are making the films about their stories, mm -hmm. but I also think that it shouldn't stop other people from the outside making films about that community. And I know in America, that's it's a huge topic. Um, as long as it's done in a way, it's about the tone and it's about the respect for the community and what you're trying to say. Like, So I think those things are huge considerations, that the way you tell that story, is it, are you being respectful? Um, of of what you're trying to get out of this community by the film that you're making are you including the people in in that film okay. so i think yeah so for yourself you're saying you were an outsider um to the cape malay community um yourself so how did you ingratiate yourself into there and I mean, beyond just doing what I did, which was like read a, a Wikipedia page, which is, you know, whatever. It's a good starting point, but I would assume you would have done more. So what, 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 what did you do for this film and in terms of getting that respect and um, learning more about the community? 
So from the get-go, we insisted on all the HODs um, uh, being black HODs, yeah. and all and mostly from uh, the Cape Malay community. Like so, my production designer Sumeya Wickham, she's fantastic. She's she's Cape Malay. Um, Marcy Trout, who's our AD, he's Cape Malay. Mateo is our cinematographer. He's he's black. Um, so it was we brought all and and then all of the and all the people as much as we could. I would say about 80% of our cast and crew, well, all the cast um, are from that community and then all the crew made up from that community. So that was the first thing and that happened even 10 years ago that we included everybody to make it feel like they, everyone had a say from, from the community. Um, and I, most of my films are with, with black cast and crew. So it's been something that I've is done from from day one mm -hmm. so we talked a bit about bunny chow um at the beginning and it's it's kind of crazy to me to think 2006 is 16 years ago now it's a, it's a bit much <laughs> but i mean it's a long time so over the 16 years for you as a filmmaker in south africa what have you seen the changes in terms of you know what what directors are getting a shot now? What stories are being told? What's the audience's appetite? Like, how has that changed over from 2006 to, to 2022? Yeah, it's been huge. I mean, I think when, when we made Bunny Child, there was only three South African films made at the time. Uh, we went through a bit of a slump. I mean, we, we made more films uh, leading up to that, but that was a particularly bad year. And I think the industry was, was, was very white dominated, white male, old white male dominated. And, and I think that the films, um, there were some very good films that, that challenged the, the status quo. But I think this part was probably all from a white perspective. And I think what the streamers have done, it's now creating so many opportunities for, for female and for black filmmakers that, um, you know, we have like filmmakers who a few years ago hadn't made a film are now on their second or third film. Um, and so the industry is it's fantastic. I just hope we contain it. And I think we need, we need a couple of success stories. Otherwise, you know, I feel as if the streamers are going to go, well, this is not, not really working for us. We're not getting anything back for all the money we're putting into. We have to, all the filmmakers are aware that we do need, we do need success um, on, some, on some level. Um, and I think that, I think the viewership is very good. So I think it's, already the money they're putting in I think throughout Africa like if you look at Queen Sona who's made by my friend Kahiso who's in a lot of my films I think Kahiso is moving on to another big show at the moment so it's, it's great because filmmakers are actually employed and are, and are doing and are doing well so the, it's, the industry has it's changed completely it was a handful of a few filmmakers who had control of the industry it's now blown up completely to where everyone's getting an opportunity. I just, we just got to keep making good content. One thing I, I spoke with a couple South African directors last year during the film festival circuit, and they both mentioned how there seems to be a bit of a boom in South Africa now for genre filmmaking. So action, sci-fi, horror, those things. And I, I was interested in that because I saw, there was a movie I saw called Fried Berry, which the one of the weirdest things I've ever seen in my life, but it was really interesting. Um, they were saying it was a great thing that now that um, 
now that genre filmmaking was was kind of experiencing a bit of a boom in the country because because of a younger generation coming up who doesn't just want to tell stories that are you know about apartheid necessarily like a dramatic story about apartheid and they're saying that there's a bit of freedom now in the film industry to create different things and I feel like your film is is one of those that is a great pull from it's not about apartheid but it is about you know uh, a lot of things that bled into apartheid in many ways but yet is a genre film in its own way like you have the comedy you have the you have the action and um, I, I think that that's such a wonderful thing and it must be such an exciting bit, especially for yourself. I'm not calling you old. I actually was very surprised when I saw your picture. I thought, how did he make a film in 2006? Uh, but to be someone who was around since since the beginning to see it, it must be a very it must be quite satisfying to see the film industry kind of branch out apart from just drama and, and doing so many different things now. Yeah, exactly. It's about, um, you know, you, when industry starts like this, you kind of, people make films, broad films about apartheid and those, those kind of themes. And so what's happening now is what is so cool is that the stories are becoming smaller, intimate, and more about authenticity, about a smaller community. And, and so we're seeing that, that people are, you know, we have, we have so many different languages in this country. And so, so, so few of those have actually had any films made about about themselves, but we now start to see that that there's a small about uh, a bunch of fishermen on the west coast of South Africa, and that's a film that's been made. Mm-hmm. And so we find that filmmakers are now are not afraid to go. Well, it's not a broad strokes about apartheid. Um, it's actually just about my relationship between myself and my mother growing up in the fishing village on the west coast of South Africa. And I'm telling that film. That film is now being seen on Netflix. Uh, and on Amazon, it's being seen around the world. So, uh, yeah, that's 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 changed, and that's that's what's so cool. That's amazing. That's definitely, yeah. I think that's that's great, and it's it's you know you don't escape apartheid, you don't ignore it because obviously you can't. It's such a part of the fabric, and you know it, because it is so recent, it is still very much you know a fact. I don't need to tell you this, but like it to me, it's one of those things that's interesting that you know, you can tell other stories, but still keep that aspect. It's not like you're just shunning it away and saying this never happened, you know? So I find that fascinating. Um, Thank you so much for your time. I'm going to let you go so that you can have a bit of a break between me and the next person. Um, But thank you so much for your time. I really enjoyed speaking with you. And I, I loved watching the film as well. It was great. Thanks again to John Barker for taking the time to speak with me. And if you're at the festival looking for something a little less heavy, because I know TIFF movies can generally be a bit, they're very emotional and they're very heavy and they're very dramatic. Um, the Umbrella Men's a great one to check out. It's a, it's a fun comedy to, um, to watch. And I think it'd be a fun one to watch in theaters as well with the crowd. Alrighty, so that is me done for my first episode on my own, and hopefully that wasn't too rough, and Dakota, this wasn't too difficult to edit. Uh, of course, if you want to follow me and more of my work, uh, and it's all TIFF stuff at the moment, so you can check me out on rachelkh.com, and I'm on Twitter at underscore rachelkh. You can follow the show on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at ContraZoomPod. If you saw anything that you think myself, Dakota, anyone really should be checking out at TIFF, send us an email at contrazoompod at gmail.com. Thank you to Eric and Kevin Smell for the theme music and to Stephanie Pryor for the logo design. 
If you like to listen to podcasts on YouTube, we do post all episodes there as well. Thanks for checking us out. Bye. Mm-hmm.